Take God's word to 1 Peter chapter 3. For those that are visiting with us, we've been doing a, a study in 1 Peter, which really is about hope. Hope in the midst of some turbulent, suffering, hard, difficult times, both present and anticipated future. As you turn there, let me say a little bit about tonight. You notice in your bulletin we're having a congregational meeting. Everyone's invited. We do deal with the budget where the members get a chance to say kind of yay or nay to that. But we also talk about vision, where we're headed. Yesterday, Leadership Council spent the entire day seeking God in this matter, and we'll have a conversation about that this evening. It was two weeks ago, Dr. Kime talked about how we are citizens, not of this world. And of course, this beyond world is something that we cannot and do not know. But it's where our loyalty and it's where our love exists. Last week, Pastor Mike talked about being called to serve. And contrast that with our current culture. I don't know if you heard this past Thursday, they had what was called a million student march down in D.C. And they had three demands. One was tuition-free education. Two was cancellation of all student debt to date. And three, a 15-hour minimum wage for campus workers. They were not looking at how they could serve. They were looking at how they could be served. And when you look at our culture, service is not something dictated by our culture. Now, both Mike and Dr. Kime brought out that the circumstances in which this context Peter was calling people to were not ideal. In fact, they were pretty troublesome. All this really begs us to ask the question, what does it mean to live as a people of hope in the midst of difficult times, both present and and anticipated futures. Now, all of us have baselines. Baseline is what we call our core values. It's core beliefs that drive us. There's our stated baselines, but there's those that we choose to live by, and sometimes they're different. One for me is I'm Christocentric. What that simply means is I believe his word, I believe his father, I believe his spirit, I believe in the gospel. What that means is I love the church. Because it's his church. And I believe it is the hope of the world. And when it's living according to its design, it is the single most powerful influencer and transformer culture has ever come to face with. Nothing can stop it. As Jesus said, not even the gates of hell. But for me, being Christocentric gives purpose, meaning, and hope. And that's what I spend my life trying to do for other people. Give them hope beyond what their life experience is. Now, having said, I love the church, you need to know, too, that Bev and I, we love this church. We're part of this church. And we have incredible hope about what God is doing and will do through you. Because you are the beautiful bride of Jesus. Amen? Come on. You're allowed to say amen to that. So, in that context, let's look at the text today. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Peter begins by saying, likewise. 
Now, likewise, points us back to everything that was said in the last two, three, four, five sermons. So you kind of get this whole cataloging of hope, of serving, of living in the midst of difficult situations. And he finally says, likewise, and he's going to start addressing the family. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, I want you to look around for a moment. Notice who's not here. They knew we're going to teach about this, so they decided to go somewhere else this morning. I'm just kidding. Wives, be subject to your husbands. I know the husbands want to say amen, but they're sitting there very quietly, just amen. So that even if some of you, some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, let not your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, and that points back to everything that was said prior to this verse, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I want to start with verse 7. Culturally, we have to understand that this was written in a very male-dominated culture. By that, I mean women were treated as objects. They were treated as property. They had very little. In fact, they had no rights. I know that's hard for us to grasp today, and we cry foul on rights today, but it is something far beyond anything we could experience. So you have to understand how radical it was for Peter to come along and say, husbands, we want you to live this way in an understanding way. And looking at the context, they had to understand several things. Number one, who God is. That's part of our whole context, that if you're in the kingdom of God, you will think and you will feel and you will live a very different way. They had to understand what his kingdom rule looks like. Marriage in his kingdom rule was very different than their particular culture. Family in the kingdom rule was very different than their particular culture. He says, be sensitive to differences. Differences do not determine value or worth. That's one of the mistakes we make in our culture. We think just because someone's different, that either makes them right or wrong or high or low. No, differences are simply that. They're differences. And he says, show them honor, show them respect as the weaker vessel. Now, the weaker vessel here is not mentally or emotionally or intellectually or spiritually. What they're referring to is the physical differences. Women are made differently than men. But we have to ask ourselves why. I mean, why does he bring this up? What's the value? I mean, what's the take-home? If men are going to choose to live this way in the kingdom of God, what do they get out of it? 
Peter writes, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now think about this. This is not praying right helps us to live right. Peter says living right helps us to have effective prayer. And taking it to its logical conclusion, it simply means that in our present day, there's a lot of men who pray and their prayers are not effective because of how they treat their spouses. This is the kingdom of God culture. Now take our American culture. Today we see an assault on what we traditionally know as marriage and family. It's a very strange paradox, isn't it? Because we have more information today. We have more counselors today. We have more choices than most generations. We have more freedom. We have more rights. We have more opportunities. And at the same time, we have more violence in our homes and marriages. So you got to ask yourself, why? Wasn't the answer obvious? It has to do with our relationship to our creator. It has to do with our relationship to Jesus. See, most of our definitions and experiences have humanity at the center and not God. It's our expectations, and it's our personal happiness, and it's our personal rights. And as a result, when we live this way, even in Christian homes, there's violence in our homes. When there's violence in our homes, it spills over in the public arena. If you've been following what's been going on with the University of Missouri, it's a result of the breakdown first in our homes. I mean, think about this university. A year and a half ago, they were being hailed as the front runner in tolerance when a college football player came out of the closet as gay. And the president was hailed as one of the great college presidents in America. Now he's being labeled as a racist and protests. And they ask and force his resignation, both him, now the chancellor, and the professor, because they felt he wasn't doing enough. Hero to villain in two short years. And this is all symptomatic of the breakdown of what's going on in terms of, first of all, our authority before God, second of all, our authority in the home. It's really a picture of what's going on in our homes. A loss of common sense, a loss of reason. We call it the tail wagging the dog. Lies, accusations, resignations. So here's the challenge, men. You want to have an effective prayer life? Live with your wife in a kingdom way. Live with understanding and honor. Now, let's go back to the first six verses. I know some of you want to cry foul. You say there's one verse for the men and there's six for the ladies. Now, first of all, remember, there's no chapter or verses in the original text, so it's really not written that way. But having said that, there is considerable more information for the ladies than the men. Why? May I suggest two reasons. One, and Peter brings this out, women were coming to Christ and were living in a context with an unsaved husband. That's the primary context, in fact. Peter says this creates a huge opportunity for you to influence your spouse into the kingdom. Two, in Christ, in their culture, women 
had major shifts away from being treated as property to equal value. And what that looks like, what that feels like, it takes some good thinking. So Paul's like, ladies, don't get running ahead of yourselves and use your new value and freedom to your harm and the harm of the kingdom. And we see that in the preceding verses that Pastor Mike preached about last week, where he talks about servants and masters and how the servants, even though slavery is unjust, he doesn't address that. He says the slaves should live in such a way and serve their masters as if they would serve Christ. So you understand your context, your situation, your experience does not determine your response. Christ does. And while this is written to women, some women with unbelieving husbands, the truths really are relevant to all women. Again, the context is that we are called to be living hope in our situation. And these six verses really beg us to ask this question. What is the root cause of a woman's greatness in the eyes of God? What is the root cause of a woman's beauty in the eyes of God? There's three things I want to talk about. First, Peter says they hoped in God. Look at verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. And what we learn here is in verse 6 that this kind of hope, this living hope, drives out fear. As Sarah obeyed in verse 6, Abraham calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good... And do not fear anything that is frightening. I mean, Peter acknowledges there's a lot of things that ought to scare us. But fear should not dictate our response. Fear should not reign and control. We should not submit ourselves to fear. Rather, we submit ourselves and we hope in God. Now, one of our cultural distinctives, and I don't know if you look at it this way, but a lot of TV shows, a lot of advertising, a lot of political announcements, Have you noticed they use fear? If you don't buy this kind of car seat, your child will die. I mean, that's the implication. Medication advertisements. They create this fear, and they talk about the number of people that call their doctors after they see these on TV, that we might have these symptoms, so we need this medication. Now, what confuses me is they're not afraid of the side effects. You know, you have that long litany like, man, why would I touch that? They make you afraid that you don't have enough for your retirements. Politicians make you afraid to vote for the other person. They actually make good people afraid to run because of how they'll be accused and lied about. It's the power of accusation and rumor. Our culture uses fear to control us. Now, any sociologist will tell you fear is a motivator, never produces lasting change. And so it becomes like an addiction. They got to keep running fear and keep running fear and keep advertising fear and keep making you afraid of something new to be afraid of. Now, contrast this with the kingdom of God when it talks about fear. Let's look at scriptural witness. Matthew 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So we don't have to be afraid of anything out here that could harm us and literally kill us. What we should live with is in fear of God because 
He alone is master over our destiny. Acts 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. Now remember, they were being persecuted. They were being killed. They were being thrown in prison. It says they had peace. And was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Note the contrast there. Not being afraid of things here, but being respectful, submitting to the authority of the Lord brings comfort of the Holy Spirit. It what? It multiplied. You want to grow a church? Right, there's a formula. All the things we think about are reasons for church growth. You don't see any of them there in that verse, do you? 2 Timothy 1.7 For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You have the whole idea of submission and living in an understanding way. That word love and self-control is very relevant to that. 1 Peter 2.17 that Dr. Kime talked about. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. In 1 Peter 3, verses 14 and 15, later on we'll see this next week. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You know what he's saying there? Just because you choose to live in a godly way doesn't mean there's going to be a happy ending here. Doesn't mean that your circumstances will automatically change. Doesn't mean that everything's going to work out. It means sometimes you'll get fired. Sometimes your marriage will break apart. Sometimes... In other words, in this world, bad things do happen to people who follow Christ. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And you get this idea that sometimes these people are angry and they're hostile and they're coming at you. Like, you know, why don't you just give up? And they're saying, you know what? Don't respond with violence. Don't respond with anger. Don't respond in kind, but rather do it with gentleness and respect. So the first aspect of a a beautiful woman before the Lord and her husband is to hope in God. Secondly, Peter writes that these women adorn themselves in a positive way that honors God and therefore honors their husbands. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external. You might put the word only there because it's implied. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, which is the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Now let's start with the last phrase, which in God's sight is very precious. And this is what he's talking about. In God's sight, this is what a precious, beautiful woman, wife looks like. So ladies, this is how you look good for God. Now I want to make this observation. It does not say, ladies, you can't do your hair. Doesn't say you can't wear jewelry. Doesn't say you can't wear nice, modest clothes. Now I'm going to show my age. I remember a day when, 
Makeup for ladies and earrings, especially pierced, were considered sinful in the church, and they were the focus of the controversy. There's a story told where Billy Graham would hold crusades, and he was going to the Netherlands. And it was rumored in the Netherlands that Billy Graham allowed the women on his team to wear makeup and earrings, and they could not believe that. And so there was literally a crowd waiting at the airport to see if this was true, because if it was true, then these good Christians could not enter into such a pagan environment. So the plane landed, the team got off, and the men noticed that when the women got off, yes, they did have makeup and earrings, and they were so shocked, their jaws dropped wide open and their cigars and cigarettes fell out of their mouths. Chuck Swindoll, during that same time, was pastoring in California. And it was a hot controversy because, you know, California, things kind of start there and move uh, to us. And so a lot of ladies were accepting Christ. They were coming in their makeup and jewelry. And so he decided to preach a sermon. Here was the title. If the barn needs paint, then paint it. I don't know how well that went over, but. uh... Now, it seems silly, doesn't it? I mean, we look back at it and say, how silly could people be? But back then it wasn't. It divided the church. Much like music divides us today. The point is, and the point Peter's making, is that so often we lose our center. We lose our focus. When external becomes the focus and not the internal, we lose a proper idea of who we are and our beauty. So Peter says, listen, work on the inside. Work on which is eternal. Work on which is imperishable. And do it with a gentle and quiet spirit. Don't oppose what's going on and be harsh. Don't oppose what's going on out of fear. You have a quiet And gentle, you have that peace which passes all understanding. And so he says, number one, these women hoped in God. Number two, they adorned themselves internally first and externally as a result of their internal commitment. And thirdly, he says, they were submissive to their husbands. Wives, be subject to your husbands. That's how it starts. Now, I want to read a verse in 1 Peter 4, verse 19. It's on the screen as well because we have to understand that proper submission always begins with our relationship with God. If we cannot submit before God, we will not submit before each other. It's that simple. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 19, Therefore, if those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. See, submission is about entrusting. And to illustrate how we are so misaligned with the kingdom of God and aligned with our culture, let's be honest this morning. When I read that verse and when I talk about submission, it causes many people to do what? Oof, I don't know if I like this. I can't tell you how many marriages I do now where during counseling, 
the woman will look at me and say, listen, we don't want to talk about that submissive stuff during the wedding. I said, we better talk about it now then. See, submission begins with recognizing that God is sovereign. We submit first to God, then we submit to each other. And in this case, Peter identifies the unbelieving husband. He says, you should be the example of the kingdom of God to him. Now, having said that, submission is not allowing yourself to be drawn into illegal or abusive situations. But how you respond to that, you do it with a gentle and quiet spirit. You don't get back in their face and start yelling, saying, I can't do that, you know. In the name of Jesus, get the demon out of here. No, we don't do that. It's learning to pray the right way. It's learning to respond and not react. It's learning to honor and respect. So what does all this mean? Well, you could put it in a negative way. It says, doesn't mean that you nag. It doesn't mean that you gossip. It means that you respond instead of react. It's, it's really calling for a new way of thinking about your husband. Several weeks ago, I talked about the movie The War Room. And for me, the movie, the value of the movie is that it raises the bar in prayer. But let me tell you about one of the things I liked in the movie. And let me say this about when I recommend books and movies. You know, books and movies are like everything. I read for I can get out of it. doesn't mean I agree with everything in it. But here's one of the things I really liked about the movie. There's a shift in how spouses pray, how wives pray for their husbands. There's a shift to this gentle and quiet spirit. It's there. There's a shift on how the marriage was viewed. There's a shift in the power of forgiveness. There's a shift, and the whole emphasis was, align yourself with God, let him dictate your life, and not your circumstances. And you don't see that shift too often. Now, all this is not a magical formula, like I said before. If you do all this internal stuff, you're going to have a happy ending. That's not why you do the inward adornment thing. You do it because it makes God smile. It pleases Him. I mean, true worship to an audience of one is when we bow our knees to Him and Him alone. Our kingdom purpose is to bring glory to Him. I mean, that's why we exist. So everything we say, everything we do, Publicly, privately, alone in a group. The common core value, what drives us, is that we desire to bring God his due glory. Amen? And here's the critical truth. Here's what Peter's trying to say, both to men and women, that their spirit and demeanor was different than the culture around them. And that's what Peter is telling us. It's not determined by circumstances. It's not determined by persecution. It's not determined by difficulty. It is determined by Jesus Christ, his Father, and his Spirit, who enable us to live in ways that we cannot live ourselves. Now I want to close with this illustration. Many of you, I'm sure, have read books by John Piper. He's been you know, one of the premier preachers in America over the last several decades. What we have not heard about is his mother, Ruth. John had a sister, so there was just two. 
But John's dad was a traveling evangelist. And back when he was a child, that simply meant that John's dad was gone two-thirds of the year. Back then, they did one to three weeks of services. Sometimes the distance takes a week to get there, a week to get back home. So he writes that him and his sister were raised much of the time by their mother. They lived in South Carolina. There was a civil rights going on, a very contentious time. He remembers a time in the church where the church, during a congregational meeting like we had tonight, and they had all their biblical reasons, and we say, how could they do this? But they did. They took a vote on not to allow black people to worship with the white people. And he remembers his mom standing up as a lone dissenter in the midst of that meeting. He watched his mother stand alone in opposition because dad was off preaching somewhere. In 1963, when his sister got married, they had black friends. And so they invited them to the wedding, and the ushers were seating their black friends in the balcony away from the white people. He watched his mom, who was the mother of the bride, get up, usher their black friends into the main sanctuary floor with them. John learned that when his dad was away, she was strong in her loneliness, and she did it all. But when his father came home, he watched her gentle, quiet submission yield to his dad's authority when he took over leadership in the home. There's an old adage. It's attributed to many different people, but it applies in this situation. And John actually talks about this. It says, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. So men... Are you living with your spouse? And if you're not married, are you treating women around you in such a way that you have an effective prayer life? That's your question this morning. And women, what are you more concerned about? Developing inward beauty or more concerned about dressing to impress? Do you buy into the lies of our culture or the truth of God's word? And people, if we want a strong church, if we want an effective church, it begins in our homes. So it's time to put away the excuses. It's time to put away the rumors and accusations. And it's time to put on Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to sing. We're going to sing a song that really elevates the majesty of God. As they come, will you pray with me? Father God, I pray that your word takes hold of what it needs to take hold of. May your spirit interpret things in our lives that we need to hear because we are so inadequate sometimes at our own communication. I pray, Lord, that we seek to bow our knees to you and you alone. And out of that, we learn to live as kingdom kids. We learn to be the beauty in the midst of the ugliness that exists in our world. We learn to be the peace in the midst of the violence. And people look at us and say, wow, you know, can't figure out why they're so hopeful and loving and kind. So, Lord, we pray for the church, that we become the church that we are called to be and not what we think we should be. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.